This is ARN. Decidedly Christian, distinctly biblical, and just a little bit nuts. This is Squirrel Chatter. And welcome to the Piney Woods, ladies and gentlemen. I am your Squirrel, the host, coming to you from the ARN studios, high atop the tallest tree in the Piney Woods. Good to have you with us. It is Thursday, the 17th day of August, and it's so close to September. Fall is in the air. I was walking around yesterday, and and trees are, and bushes are starting to brown up, mostly from, you know, drier conditions, um, which is normal for us this time of year, although we did have a couple of cool weeks with rain in August, which is very unusual. But uh, this week, it's been in the the low 100s every day. And uh, walking around yesterday, I noticed that uh, while it didn't smell smoky, the air definitely had the reddish-orange tint that tells me that that sunlight is passing through some smoke that must be very high up. And uh, I haven't really checked the websites to see what's around us. I know with that rain we had a couple of weeks ago, it, it did lower our risk of wildfires from very high to high. <laughs> uh, moderate improvement there. But yeah, yeah, it's... Uh, it's August in Montana. We got August and September and October. First snowfall is always traditionally the end of October. Uh, it's just a it's 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 a wow moment. We're we're having wow times right now. So um, just time passing so quickly. All right, this is Squirrel Chatter, a podcast dedicated to scripture, theology, history, current events, and whatever else I want to talk about. We webcast every Monday through Friday at 7.30 a.m. Mountain on Twitter, Facebook, and Rumble. And then the podcast is available for download wherever you find fine podcasts. Squirrel Chatter is a proud member of the Christian Podcast Community. Head on over to ChristianPodcastCommunity.com. Check out all the great curated podcasts that are over there. You are certain to find something worth listening to. I guarantee it. All right. Coming up today, we have prayers from the Book of Common Prayer. We have a reading from John MacArthur's Daily Readings from the Life of Christ. And then it's Thursday, so we've got Theology Thursday. We are going to conclude today the 17th chapter of the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith of the Perseverance of the Saints. A very important topic and... Uh, uh, one that I think the 1689 nails down pretty well. All right. Let us begin, as is our practice, with the prayer of confession from the 2019 Book of Common Prayer. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and apart from your grace there is no health in us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Spare all those who confess their faults. Restore all those who are penitent. 
according to your promises declared to all people in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may now live a godly, righteous, and sober life. To the glory of your holy name. Amen. All right. Grant to your faithful people, merciful Lord, pardon and peace, that we may be cleansed from all our sins and serve you with a quiet mind through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And now, John MacArthur's Daily Readings from the Life of Christ. Today's devotional is entitled, Jesus and Non-Retaliation, Security. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also, Matthew 5.40. Most people in New Testament times owned just one coat, and likely just one or two shirts. Shirts were undergarments and coats were outer garments that also served as blankets overnight. This kind of coat was important. What the Mosaic Law required be returned to its owner before the sun sets, for that is his only covering. It is his cloak for his body. Exodus 22, 26, and 27. Jesus' reference here is not to a theft when someone wants to steal another's garment, but to a legitimate lawsuit in a legal court. In those days, the courts often mandated that fines or judgment be paid in clothing. The illustration is that a genuine follower of Christ will be willing to surrender even his most valuable coat to an adversary rather than cause offense or hard feelings. The judge could not require a specific code in payment, but the person could voluntarily give it up. Even if a settlement against us is fairly arrived at for a certain amount, we should be willing to pay more to demonstrate sincere regret for the wrong done and the pain inflicted on another. Most of us have probably never considered this option, but it shows the love of Christ and genuineness of our faith. Ask yourself. Notice that this series of scenarios from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount consistently calls for more than the law demands. What does that tell you about the way we're supposed to respond in situations in which our personal integrity or the cause of Christ is being challenged? There's a lot more there. That's a, that's a complex part of the Sermon on the Mount. One of the things is that it, uh, it is referring, I believe, to situations in which the believer was in the wrong. You know, if you're being sued, there's, there's the, the sense in which the suit is valid. Because defending yourself against wrongful accusation is certainly not uh, unbiblical or unwise. So I think that we really need to consider that this has something to do with situations where the believer is at fault. That when you are at fault, you recognize it. You don't continue denying it. You, you recognizing it, recognize it and you willingly accept the penalty for it. Um, that's a discussion for another time. All right. It is Thursday. It's Theology, Theology Thursday. And I couldn't enunciate yesterday and I can't enunciate today either. I'm ready for the weekend, I guess. And it's rapidly upon us, isn't it? 
All right, it is Thursday, so it is Theology Thursday. We are looking at chapter 17 of The Perseverance of the Saints. This is chapter 17 of the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. There are three paragraphs. We've looked at the first two. Today we will finish it up looking at the third paragraph. I'll read the first two, and then we will jump into the third one with a little bit uh, deeper look. Paragraph 1. Those whom God has accepted in the Beloved, effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit, and given the precious faith of His elect unto, can neither totally nor finally fall from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved, seeing the gifts and callings of God are without repentance, from which source he, sh he still begets and nourishes in them faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the Spirit unto immortality. And though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, yet they shall never be able to take them off that foundation and rock by which faith they are fastened upon. Notwithstanding, through unbelief and the temptations of Satan, the sensible sight of the light and love of God may for a time be clouded and obscured from them. Yet he is still the same, and they shall be sure to be kept by the power of God unto salvation, where they shall enjoy their purchased possession, they being engraved upon the palm of his hands, and their names having been written in the book of life from all eternity. Those whom God chooses to save, he keeps saved. And so if someone is truly saved from God, they can never lose that salvation, even though at times they face temptations and, and, and trials and fail in those temptations and trials from time to time. They will never lose the salvation because they are not the author of their salvation. Paragraph 2. This perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decrees of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God, the free and unchangeable love of God the Father upon the efficacy and merit and intercession of Jesus Christ and union with him, the oath of God, the abiding of his spirit, and the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace from which ariseth all the certainty and infallibility thereof. And so what this is saying, apart from the mention of the covenant of grace, which is not something I hold to, um, what this is saying is that you didn't save yourself and you don't keep yourself saved. It's the will of him who saves you. And that our salvation is sure because our Savior is sure, and he cannot fail. Therefore, our salvation is certain. And that's an important point. And that brings us to paragraph 3. And though they may, through the temptation of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of means of their preservation, fall into grievous sin, and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve his Holy Spirit, come to have their graces and comforts impaired and have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, 
hurt and scandalize others, and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. Yet shall they renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Christ Jesus to the end. So this is saying that even though, you know, we fail, we sometimes fail greatly, it is that those who are truly saved will return to repentance. Um, it's uh, understanding the purposes of church discipline are always to restore the sinning brother. There are some people, we all fall into sin. There's, that's, that's just a reality. We all fall into sin. There are some people for whom a single confrontation by a friend is enough to correct their course. There are some people who require several confrontations, you know, taking with you two or three, there before they correct their course. There are some who it will require it to the reach the point where it's told to the entire church. And then there are some who it will take excommunication from the church to get their attention and get them to return to repentance. Um, all of the, the whole process of, of church discipline is designed to restore the sinning brother, not to kick people out of the church. Although... You know, the end result is hopefully unbelievers are removed from the church who, 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 you know, for this or that reason became a part of the church through deceit of themselves or others, um, false claims of Christianity, etc. But those people are, you know, removed through church discipline, but sinning believers are confronted with their error and encouraged to repent through church discipline. And for some, it takes that final step. The, the, the goal of us and the desire of all of us, knowing that we are going to sin, our desire ought to be that the first step would be plenty. <laughs> you know, we have a brother come to us and say, you know, you're, you're, this isn't right. You're, what you're doing isn't right. You know it isn't right. Fix it. And we fix it. And that's as far as it goes. That's where we want to be. <laughs> that's where we want to be. We want to have that teachable spirit. We want to be correctable. Um, and, you know, sometimes somebody points out something we're not aware of because we just weren't paying attention or we were not uh, sensitive to that particular area. Other times, you know, we get confronted on stuff we know darn well we ought not be doing. And it's that's enough to get us to stop. But for others, you know, it's going to take more severe correction before we finally come to our senses <laughs> and renew our repentance, to use the word of the paragraph. So the paragraph starts out and says, And though they may, through the temptation of Satan and of the world, so we have the world around us, um, 
And when we talk about the temptation of Satan, remember, Satan is not omnipotent. He is not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. Satan is not an evil but equal counterpart to God. Satan is a creature. God alone is creator. Satan cannot be everywhere at once. He cannot know everything, and he can't do anything. He is only able to be one place at a time. He is only able to know a, you know, a finite amount of stuff. You know, now, this is not to say that Satan doesn't have supernatural powers and abilities that far exceed our own and that he has great intelligence. I think that's, that's clear from Scripture. But he's not God. So he's not everywhere, and he, he can't do everything. And he doesn't know everything. And because of that, we need to understand that, you know, 99.99% of the time we sin, it's us. <laughs> It's that next line, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them. That's what causes us to sin. But what Satan uses his power to do is to set the stage, the culture in which we live, the prevalence of, you know, immorality in our culture, in our media, in the attitudes that are around us. These affect us often without us even knowing it um, or being aware of it. And so the temptation of Satan in the world is the same thing. Satan has the power to shape the world, not completely and totally, but he can adversely affect it. And that world has an adverse effect on the believer. This is why we're told not to love the world or the things of the world. We're, we're not to look to the world for our values. We're not to look to the world for our definition of success. We're not to look to the world for a lot of this stuff. Because the world is Satan's creature. In, in the sense that the attitudes of the world, a lot of the events of the world, I said, you know, um, Satan spends his efforts on government, on large cultural influencers, and I'm not talking about individuals, I'm talking about industries, um, you know, Hollywood, and on false religion. These are the focus of Satan. He is trying to tempt people into sin. He's trying to distract them from the true worship of God. He's trying to get them to worship self and pleasure as opposed to worship the God of the universe. And so that is the temptation of Satan in the world. It's the one thing. It's not Satan's tempting you and the world's tempting you. Satan is using the world to tempt everyone. But like I said, most of the time we, we sin, it's because of the prevalence of corruption remaining in them. It is that sinful nature that we were born with, that although we have been redeemed from it, we still struggle with it while we are in this life. Um, there will come a time when that influence will be gone, and oh, what a joy that will be. 
But for now, we struggle with these things. And the neglect of means of their preservation. The neglect of means of their preservation. This is an interesting clause. Think about this. What are the means of the preservation of our faith? Time in the Word and time with the saints. Time in worship of God, alone and in the company of fellow believers. Sitting under the, the, the faithful exposition of the Word by biblically qualified elders. These are the means of our preservation. Prayer and the Word and worship and the fellowship of the saints. These are the things that, that keep us from sin. As, uh, as, as I don't know who originally said it, but it's, uh, I've, I've heard it seen as a common thing for, for, uh, in the gifting of a Bible that someone might inscribe the inside cover of it. This book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. And so when we get into sin, when we fall into sin, we neglect the things of God. And also, if we neglect the things of God, we're more likely to fall into sin. So that's the, the means of preservation. So because of the temptation of the Satan in the world, because of the corruption that's within us, and because of the neglect of the Christian duties that, that we ought to be, uh, the Christian disciplines, let's put it that way. We fall into grievous sin and for a time continue therein. So the believer can sin and the believer can indeed continue in sin for a season. Matthew 26, 70, 72, and 74 Verse 70, but he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are talking about. Verse 72, and again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. And 74, then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. This is, of course, Peter's denial of Christ three times on the night he was arrested. Peter, who had earlier that evening said, you know, Others may fall away, but I'll die with you. A, it wasn't God's purpose for Peter to die that night. And B, Peter needed to learn a little bit of humility. And we all need to learn a little bit of humility. Don't be arrogant and think you're above sin. You're not. Um, you know, Peter denied Christ. There might come a time when you're tempted to do the same thing. That because of the temptation of Satan in the world, because of your neglect of Christian disciplines, and because of the corrupt nature that remains with you, you're going to sin. Sometimes you're going to sin grievously. You know, you're going to be, I, I remember, <laughs> so a lot of truth to this too. Dr. Jeff Johnson at GBTS, uh, he, he, we were, what was the class we were on? I uh, can't remember what class it was. I've had a couple of his classes. Um, 
but in one of his classes, he was talking about sin and temptation. And he said, be honest, guys. One of the main reasons that none of us are falling into adultery is that God didn't make us look like Brad Pitt. We don't have the opportunity. <laughs> you know? And he says, you know, I don't know that I'm strong enough if some supermodel started hitting on me, you know, that I'd be able to resist it. He says, God in his sovereignty made me unattractive to supermodels so that they're not hitting on me. And and that was a that was an interesting point when he said that because it was like, yeah, you're right. A lot of the reasons why a lot of guys, even good Christian men, don't fall into adultery is because they're not, you know, super attractive guys who have the opportunity. You know, interesting thought. Um but so, you know, we are going to fall into sin, sometimes into grievous sin. But if we are saved, God will draw us back out of it using church discipline, using our own conscience, you know, using our conscience and using the, the confrontation of, of fellow believers. God will draw us back to himself. Because once you're saved, if you are truly saved, you are truly saved. And even when we fall into grievous sin, it says, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve his Holy Spirit. When we fall into sin, we do experience God's displeasure. And when that happens, then we, you know, we will fall under judgment. We will be disciplined. We will grieve his Holy Spirit. It's not a good place to be. Um... Isaiah 64, 5 says, You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. Behold, you were angry. Indeed, we have sinned. We continued in them a long time, and shall we be saved? And then verse uh, six, uh, chapter 64, verse 9 of Isaiah. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Yahweh, nor remember iniquity forever. Behold, look now, all of us are your people. So this is, you know, in the face of God's displeasure, when we repent, he takes us back. And the reason he takes us back is because he's the one who brings us back to repentance in the first place. And indeed, understanding the absolute sovereignty of God, he has a perfectly valid and good reason why he allowed us to fall into that sin. There's a reason for it. And he will use it for his glory and our good. Ephesians 44 verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. When you fall into sin, you grieve God's Holy Spirit. That, that in itself should be motive not to do it. Of course, we're going to do it anyway but that we're, we have motives not to. So we, we, we sin, we incur God's displeasure, and we grieve the Holy Spirit when we sin. Our graces and comforts are impaired, meaning that 
our fellowship with God is uh, perturbed. Our fellowship with God is unsettled. And because of that, we are not able to enjoy the comforts and graces that we receive from God. There's a, you know, the, the comfort and grace are there, but we don't always get the immediate temporal benefits of it because our relationship is damaged because we are in sin. And so this is, again, another place where we need to repent so that we can be restored to that, that level. Um, this is Psalm 51.10. This is, again, the, uh, the psalm that David wrote after he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had her husband murdered to try to cover it up. <clears throat> he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Then in verse 12, he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. He's not asking to be saved again. He's asking that the joy of his salvation be returned to him. He hadn't lost his salvation. Because, again, you can't become unworthy of something you were never worthy of in the first place. So he hasn't lost his salvation. But he lost the joy he experienced in fellowship with God. And so I think, restore that to me. Create in me a clean heart. Wash me clean. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Return to me, you know, a willing spirit a worshiping spirit and give me back the joy that I, I should have being a child of God. So we do have our graces and comforts impaired and we also wound our own consciences and harden our hearts when we fall into sin. When we get into sin it's easy to become callous to sin. Um, and even, even, you know, fall into more and worse sin because we've hardened our heart. Psalm 32, 3 and 4. When I kept silent about my sins, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my vitality was drained away as with the heat of summer, Selah. So this experience of not only joylessness, but a wounded conscience. And on the one hand, a hardened heart seems to inure us to sin. At the same time, all wounds bring pain, you know. And, and, you know, when you acquire scars, you acquire scars through pain and suffering. And so the only way to harden your heart and to wound your spirit is to experience the pain and loss of the joy of your salvation. The pain and loss of the impaired graces and, uh, what was the impaired, uh, 
graces and comforts that you should have as a believer. This leads to a scarring, but you can only get that through pain. We also, not only do we damage ourselves, we hurt and scandalize others. You know, you think about David's, David's sin with Bathsheba. It hurt Bathsheba. It hurt Uriah. His, you know, Uriah was one of David's best friends. And he slept with his wife and had him murdered. That's what sin can do. And, you know, so it, it hurt people. It scandalized people. The, the, the scandal of David's affair with Bathsheba, the scandal of David murdering Uriah, that led directly to armed rebellion by his son Absalom. And indeed, Nathan told him that that was one of God's punishments for the sin, that a sword would not leave your household, that there would be war not only, you know, in Israel, but stemming from within David's own household. Um, and so, you know, you, you can hurt and scandalize others, and you bring temporal judgment upon yourself. That means that, you know, while the eternal punishment is, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, there's still temporal judgment. There are things that, that must be faced here and now. <clears throat> David got away with murder in one sense. I mean, he was not executed. He didn't do any prison time for killing Uriah. He, didn't, he wasn't killed for his affair with Bathsheba. But, you know, he, he faced judgment here on this earth. But, I mean, you know, sometimes, quite often, when we fall into sin, we also cross the, the law. So that, you know, we may end up facing legal penalties, temporal judgments. Not even, not even necessarily le legal, it could be civil. You know, you cheat on your wife and you end up in divorce court. And you suffer loss. Whether it's, you know, alimony payments, custody of your children, real estate and property, you know, material wealth. All of this stemming from your sin. You know, that's certainly possible. And at the same time, you're hurting your, your spouse because there also you have, you know, hurt and pain and loss. But if you break the law in your sinning, even though God has forgiven you, even though you've been restored to your uh, repentance, even, you know, after you have gone through it and come back to God, pled, you know, thrown yourself upon his mercy and been restored to a right relationship with God, you might still be in prison. You might still owe fines. You know, all of these things. You, you, by, by sinning, you, you can bring temporal judgment upon yourself. Um, and indeed, for any serious sin, you will bring 
temporal judgment upon yourself. 2 Samuel 12, 14. This is again talking about uh, David and Bathsheba. Um, simply because it's such a, 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 an example of this in the life of a believer. Nathan, talking to David, says, Because of this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of Yahweh to blaspheme. Because of that, the son that is born to you shall surely die. Because of the damage you have caused to the reputation of Yahweh. You know, when you carry the name of Christ, you carry the name of Christ into and through your sins. Which brings reproach to the cause of Christ. I think about some of the fallen pastors that I've known. Either personally or, or by reputation or through others. Some of them, I believe, were not Christians. And so, you know, but even then, they were calling upon the name of Christ, and so they brought the cause of Christ into disrepute, for which they will face judgment. But I also know and know of some pastors who I believe are genuinely brothers in Christ, who, you know, had affairs or some other sin, you know, I mean, you know, maybe some embezzlement. They were in financial need. I know of one instance. I know of an instance where, you know, plagiarism, just from sheer laziness, a pastor quit writing his own sermons and started giving other people sermons and got caught. These are people who bring reproach on the son of God, on the name of God. And because they do that, they incur temporal judgment. Loss of job, loss of reputation, you know, loss of status, you know, loss of respect, all, all sorts of things. And, and that's, that's truly the fate of the believer who falls into sin. Um, there's, there's, there's a punishment to you for that. And with David, as a, a sword never left his house. You know, he suffered rebellion and loss in his kingdom and in his family. And more immediately, the son that was born to him in Bathsheba, that, that first son, the pregnancy he was trying to cover up by having Uriah killed, that son was taken from him. And, and so that, that's a serious, serious implication that, uh, you know, your sin, A, it doesn't affect just you. It hurts and scandalizes others. It, it brings, you know, it affects, it's like ripples in a pond. It affects all those around you. But, uh, but even though all of that takes place, Yet shall they renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Christ Jesus to the end because they belong to God. Because it's God who preserves us. So we are the perseverance of the saints is not us persevering. It's God who perseveres us, brings us through it, keeps us. He saves us and he keeps us. 
even while allowing us to sin sometimes grievously. He saves us and he keeps us. Luke 22:32 Jesus says, "But I have prayed earnestly for you that your faith may not fail, and you, once you have returned, strengthen your brothers." So there's a a hint there that their faith would not fail, but it would falter. And they would have to return from it. This is of course the the night he was betrayed. And then verse uh, 61, 62 of that same chapter, Luke 22. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and cried bitterly. He was hit with the grief because he had indeed sinned. And... It denied his Lord. I mean, not a, not a minor sin. <laughs> not a minor sin at all. And it grieved him. And he knew that he had done wrong. And, but he was persevered. And he, he returned. Because he belonged to God. So we can take great comfort in the fact that God who saves us will keep us. But at the same time, looking at the steps of church discipline, there reaches a point in church discipline when we're told to treat somebody as a tax collector and an unbeliever. And there's two possibilities there. A, they're unbelievers. They're unbelievers who, for a time, became attached to the church, but were never really a part of the church. And now they, that has been revealed and they have fallen away and they are subjects for evangelism because they were never truly saved in the first place. Or it means they're saved, but they have hardened their hearts so far to the point they need to be reminded of the gospel. You know, it's, it's not even, you know, it's repent and believe the gospel at that point. It's not even... Hey, you got to deal with this. It's repent and believe the gospel. You are in sin. And you cannot know if somebody in that condition is truly saved or not. Which means even if, okay, what if they return and they repent and they come back and they live for the Lord? Is that when they got saved or is that when they got returned? We, we can't know. That's why we just do what God told us to do. But we do know that if someone is saved by God, it is God who will keep them saved. We're saved by him, we're saved for him, and we're kept for him. You know, John 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Of them I will lose nothing, but I will raise him up on the last day. So there is a, there is a surety to you know we're we're sealed under unto eternity when we come to Christ doesn't mean we're going to have sinless perfection while we're on this earth because we're not and sometimes we're going to sin very badly and very publicly and it's going to hurt um but 
if we are saved, he keeps us saved. So. All right, let us now recite our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now the colic for the 11th Sunday after Pentecost. Almighty God, give us the increase of faith, hope, and love, and that we may obtain what you promised, make us love what you command. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. The colic for guidance. Heavenly Father, in you we live and move and have our being. We humbly pray you so to guide and govern us by your Holy Spirit, that in all the cares and occupations of our life, we may not forget you, but may remember that we are ever walking in your sight. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And the colic for the unrepentant. Merciful God, you desire not the death of sinners, but rather that they should turn to you and live. And through your only Son, you have revealed yourself as the God who pardons iniquity. Have mercy on the unrepentant and those who do not believe. Awaken in them by your word and Holy Spirit a deep sense of their sinfulness and peril. Take from them all ignorance, hardness of heart, and contempt of your word. Grant them to know and feel that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which they must be saved, but only the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so bring them home and number them among your children, that they may be yours forever, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. And amen. Hope you have a great Thursday ahead of you. Remember, do the things you ought to do. Don't do the things you ought not do. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of the Lord. We'll see you again here tomorrow, which is Friday. On scroll chatter. Take care. God bless. Squirrel Chatter is recorded in front of a live studio hamster.